Welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves, where we set aside a little bit of time to talk about the consumer packaged goods, the CPG industry, which is a lot of the products in the center of the grocery store. And actually, the CPG industry makes up about one-fifth of all freight transportation. So um, a really important uh, sector to follow as far as the shipper community is uh, concerned. So today's topic, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Kroger-Albertson's merger. It's an update on that. Uh, you know, that's pretty big implications for the CPGs that sell into those uh, grocery stores. Uh, and Treehouse Foods, I'll talk about them. You know, Treehouse Foods give you some sense of what's happening with national brands versus private label. Treehouse is the company that makes a lot of these private label uh, brands. I'll talk a little bit about Pepsi, which is um, you know, the biggest snacking company, and uh, talk a little bit about how what their management said about the market um, you know, relates to what a lot of the other big CPG companies have, have as recently said. And then, of course, I'll go through uh, some data on the freight markets uh, per my usual. So I'll do those things. Uh, but before I get into that content, I would encourage you, if you're not already signed up for the Stockout newsletter, uh, to please go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. Uh, we send out a newsletter that's right there at the top. You can just go to freightwaves.com up to newsletters and then right under supply chains, you, you see the stockout, which is our, our CPG newsletter. You may also be interested in, in, that, in that retail uh, newsletter or also the, there's a cold chain uh, newsletter as well. So I think there's some, some overlap between the audiences of those uh, newsletters, uh, which um, we send out one of those uh, for, for each of those topics every every week. So I'd encourage you to go uh, do that. And also would encourage you to go sign up for our virtual conference, Global Supply Chain Week, which takes place next week. And we have a number of uh, companies on day two that are related to the CPG uh, industry. One of those is Tom, Tom Madrecki from the Consumer Brands Association. That's an industry association that represents a lot of the major I would say most of the major CPG companies, uh, both in food and um, you know outside of, of, of food, and then um, you know we have Herman Hackstein who really knows the rail car market inside and out. I'm going to be interviewing him for that day two of Global Supply Chain Week. So I'd encourage you to, to check that out as well. And with that, as just a little bit of an intro, get into the content today. Uh, topic number one. Uh, give a little bit of a Kroger and Albertsons merger update. So, um, you know, according to, to Reuters, these companies are now working on finding potential buyers for between 250 and 350 locations that could bring in a billion dollars in uh, proceeds after uh, divesting those locations. So, you know, upon this merger, you know, there's a number of um, you know, geographic markets where there's a lot of overlap between Kroger and Albertsons. Uh, some of those would include the Pacific Northwest, Seattle. They have a lot of both of those, Southern California, Phoenix, and, and Chicago, including you know Dallas. I have a number right here, both of uh, Kroger and Albertsons under the, the Tom Thumb um, uh, name. So they had previously said that they're going to divest somewhere between 100 and 375 stores. So they're sort of narrowing that down to 250 to 350. The merger is contingent upon a divestiture ceiling of 650 stores. So it comes to shopping that out, looking for buyers, some of the potential buyers that, that they're, they're um, talking to, according to Reuters, Stop and Shop, uh, the giant food company, Food Lion and Hannaford Markets, um, which operates in the Northeast. So uh, those are some of the buyers and the companies are still saying that they're on track to have a 2024, early 2024 closing 
I know a lot of the stock analysts, industry observers have their doubts that it's going to come that quickly in light of potentially lengthy process uh, from the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, oversees all the antitrust issues, has to approve this merger. Some could, could say it take, could take you know, two years plus uh, from the time of the announcement, so it could be into 2025. But um, in any event, uh, in early December, there was another another hint as far as what the timeline might be. Kroger received a second request for information from the FTC, and some suggested that that means that the, the antitrust um, investigation is maybe going into a little bit more in-depth, that they're going to really have to demonstrate that there's not an you know, anti-competitive uh, nature to the traditional grocery business in some of these core uh, markets. Um, the other update is that Albertsons, you know, did, if you haven't seen it, did was able to pay out the dividend, the $4 billion dividend that was really contested by a lot of states. Um, it was after being delayed about 11 uh, weeks or certain jurisdictions that said, well, Albertsons really shouldn't be able to pay that out because it's going to weaken the company and therefore Kroger is going to have to acquire Albertsons and that's why it's going to get approved. Um, you know, I didn't think it was all that, that argument was all that convincing and uh, was was happy to see that they were able to pay that uh, out. So as, as far as the, the merger goes, I mean, I think uh, there's some points that could make it a clear negative for the CPG sort of most obviously is you just have a more concentrated customer base. Most of the big CPGs report that Walmart is about a 20% customer of theirs, far and large, their, their largest customer, and that no other company makes up more than 10% of their sales. Kroger, now acquiring Albertsons, likely to make it a second customer that's more than 10% of, of, of sales. You do have a little bit more co- customer concentration. The other thing that comes to mind is that both Kroger and Albertsons have significant private label uh, brands that are, are pretty worthwhile. And they both say that their private label brands are about 20% of their sales. But those retailers also say that they're really good in different uh, areas. And so um, potentially the private label uh, penetration for those, uh, the combined retailer will be higher. They'll maybe take the better of the, the brands at, at, e- at each location. And it might make it a little bit more difficult for some of the national CPG brands selling into uh, those. Um, there are uh, some potential positives, I think, when you're thinking about this, this merger from the CPG perspective. And really sort of the main thing that comes to mind is the potential to leverage uh, Kroger's data, which is really going to be strong after they acquire Albertsons. They're going to have data on about 100 million households in the United States, which is pretty much everyone that buys groceries at a traditional uh, grocer. And so potentially CPGs could leverage that data in order to target advertising to specific um, you know, demographics. You know, if they're selling, I don't know, Powerade, and they know the data that uh, of, of everyone that buys Gatorade, maybe they could give you know, Powerade away for free or 50 cents a bottle or something like that you know, to those specific customers that are, that are in the habit of buying the competing product. And that's just sort of one example. Another thing that could come uh, of the merger that's a positive for CPG is they could potentially lower their costs by streamlining logistics. I think when you just have one retailer, um, you know, you can uh, streamline your costs a, a little bit. And then the other potential is, well, you know, we know that these traditional grocers are losing market share to a lot of the discounters, including the Aldi's, Trader Joe's of the world, have good prices because they're so heavily private label. You don't want that traditional grocer 
that relies heavily on those national brands to go away. So if this is something that keeps it in in, in business and, and healthy, I think that um, is is helpful for to, to CPG companies. I'll move on to topic number two, which is related also on the, the uh, grocer channel, and that's uh, Treehouse Foods sees private label taking share. Now, they, they would say that they're the private label manufacturer. They may manufacture private label uh, groceries for companies like Aldi and Trader Joe's. Some of the interesting things they said was on the unit volume growth. They, the company said that its fourth quarter unit volume growth was 3.4%. And that's versus um, basically flat for all private label brands in the categories that it competes in and a 5% decrease for national brands. So they actually see a pretty significant um, market share gain for the private label brands, something like 840 basis points. Um, so that's pretty dramatic. And you know that's they're basing that on IRIs, point of sale, data that comes out every month, which is something that I look at also. Um, I think it's pretty good. We did have IRI on um, one of the shows, uh, I think it was last year. Um, so price gap for private labels, they say is about 25% presently. It looks like it did come down in the most uh, you know, recent month was sort of in that high 20% range because the, the, um, CP, the, the, the private label brands have increased their price maybe even a little bit more. One of the interesting things that came out of Treehouse is um, earnings. They said their net sales growth in the fourth quarter was 22% on a 2.2% volume and mix decline and a price increase of 24.6%. So that is outpacing a lot of what we're seeing from the national uh, CPG brands, which is up more like 15%, um, but really um, you know, high prices sort of across the board, but particularly in, in private label still have that gap there where a consumer can save money going to, to, to private label. They, Treehouse also said, and this is important, um, they said their supply chain recovery costs are helping keep some costs under control. Also hearing that from some of the national brands, Kellogg said that, um, I think some of the others have, have said that as well, that at least you know maybe still seeing some more supply chain challenges than what is quote unquote normal, but it's um, you know better, better than it, than it was. Treehouse targeting three to five percent net sales growth this year and ten eight to ten percent adjusted EBITDA growth. So it looks like they're planning to have a better uh, 2023 um, versus the last couple of years, where um, you know I think they got caught on you know margin decline from all the cost pressure that that they were ex- experiencing and the supply chain uh, issues that they were experiencing. Uh, also related to this topic, there was a good article on CNET, which. Uh, typically is um, you know, related to computers and, and personal um, you know, technology. But they had a, 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 an article that said Trader Joe's um, was cheaper than a traditional grocery store by about 33% on like items. So not too different than that 25% that Treehouse claims. And then they said Aldi was about 4% cheaper than Trader Joe's. So it's pretty easy from that to see why uh, some of these private label heavy grocery stores are taking share from traditional um, you know, retailers. Uh, Aldi in particular is expanding uh, nicely, um, really adding a lot of locations. And Aldi is the one that consumers tend to give the highest praise to, although everyone seems to like Trader Joe's uh, as well. I was just there the other day and uh, was completely packed. Uh, I'm going to move on to uh, talking about some of the CPG companies maybe directly. And this one is uh, Pepsi says 
its inflationary pressure uh, persists. And so um, it said, they said their inflationary you know, cost pressure persists into 2023. There's some interesting uh, lines here about some of their costs. And they said the, the Frito-Lay North America, which is the segment that they call the crown jewel, that snacking uh, segment, they said they had a 19 percentage point impact from higher commodity costs, which is, consists of primarily cooking oil, seasoning and potatoes and higher advertising and marketing. Okay, the ad- advertising and marketing is discretionary, but uh, you know a lot of just higher inputs for things like potato chips. Um, the segment still has a 27% operating margin. So I think the idea is it's already at a high margin. You want to grow the revenue. And um, you know, even if the margin doesn't get any better, it's, it's take some of those brands, localize them to, to other regions across the country. They've done a nice job of, of, of doing that. Um, they also said, uh, you know, talked about costs in the Pepsi business, the soft drink business. They say PepsiCo beverages had a 53 percentage point increase on higher commodity costs, primarily fuel and resins. So I believe that goes into the, the packaging. Um, operating profit in PepsiCo beverages North America still increased 13% despite those cost pressures. So clearly taking pricing up a lot there. And then there was an interesting quote they had on what they um, expect for pricing on shelves. And so the company's CFO told, told Reuters, we have most of our price increases for the year already in place. That comes after multiple rounds of increasing prices uh, throughout last year. They said their fourth quarter average price increases increased 16%, while organic volumes fell Two percent, so not a tremendous amount of elasticity there. I think most um, CPG companies would take that—a two percent volume decline when when, you, when you're increasing your prices sixteen percent. Um, so they also said um, organic revenue growth is expected to increase six percent this year and eight um, percent, you know, EPS growth. So still seeing you know top line and bottom line uh, results, and they did they they did seem cautious though on the consumer, and it made it sound like that. Um, you know, elasticity could increase. They said that um, their volumes might be down again uh, in 2023. Wouldn't be shocked if there was a mild recession in the in, in in the U.S. And so, it's something I think we've heard from a number of different CPG companies saying that their elasticities are low. Consumers not necessarily changing their purchasing uh, behavior yet, but they're seeing the elasticities creep up where um, consumers are cutting back. A little bit in terms of you know number of items they're buying. Um, you know, certainly that data I talked about earlier with with Treehouse Foods uh, would uh, support that, um, and that also gets to what I think is really sort of the topic of the hour in CPGs is the relationship between the CPG companies and the retailers they're selling to. The retailers mostly want lower prices now or prices that at least don't increase, but a number of the CPGs say that. Their costs are still inflating. Mondelez said their prices, their costs are still rising double digits in 2023. Unilever said that they we may be past peak inflation, but their costs are still rising. So kind of prices rising, but maybe rising at a slower rate. And then Nestle, who reports on Thursday, maybe we'll get some more detail, but they said that they still have some catching up to do in terms of prices still need to rise in order to make up for the cost that they've seen, you know, rise last couple of years. And I think a lot of CPGs sort of feel like they, they're kind of behind the eight ball on, on pricing because their costs uh, rose, you know, strongly last couple of years. And, um, you know, even with, even with pricing up for most CPGs, 15% versus where they were a year ago. And that's on top of a double digit price from the year, you know, before 
a lot of them have lower gross margins than they did before the pandemic. So they're still looking to sort of make up for, for, for that um, you know, decline in margin. Uh, with that, I'll go on to the next segment, which I'll talk a little bit about the freight markets. And so um, first thing that comes to mind here is really the, the falling imports uh, should help keep freight markets loose. Uh, Zach Strickland over the weekend wrote his chart of the week article, which I would encourage everyone to sort of get in the habit of reading uh, Zach's chart of the week article. Um, on, usually comes out on Saturday where he goes through some uh, data point in uh, FreightWave sonar that just really stands out. And he looks at everything and just kind of says, okay, this is kind of the highlight. You know, if, if I could you know, highlight one thing, this, 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 this would be it. And have a, a sonar chart on the inbound um, ocean TEU volume index. And so this is uh, a unique data set that's based on when containers are booked for import at the point of origin, which is often you know, China being the, the largest overseas uh, trading partner. And, and really, um, you saw these, the, the orange line is, is 2022. You saw those really fall off a cliff starting in about May of last year. And that's where when you know my colleague Henry Byers made the, the big article on um, you know the ocean uh, imports are falling off a cliff. It didn't happen for a few months later because there was such a, a backlog at the ports and because those um, container ships you know moved so slowly. But you know, eventually it did happen, and that's really you know we're still seeing the the, the impact of that. Sort of you know, the port of uh, Long Beach in January had a 32 percent decline in uh, January in terms of loaded um, you know, container uh, TEUs, in terms of container volume down 28.4%, so let's call it in round numbers, down 30% versus where it was a year ago. That's help, keep, helping to keep the freight markets loose uh, overall, and in particular on the West Coast where you have those tender rejection rates in the low single digit range. So um, you know, they're very easy to get a truck on the West Coast. And truckload is very competitive with intermodal, including in some of the lanes that you know traditionally have been kind of intermodal lanes. You think about something like an LA to Dallas truckload is not usually competitive, uh, but I would say it's competitive, um, you know, right right now. So that was one that really um, you know stood out. Um, I'll move on to another a chart from from Sonar, which is the van contract rates, and if we, if we could bring up the van contract. So this is from a company that processes transactions and. You can see 2023 uh, year to date is in the is, is a white line, and the drive-in contract rates that have been processed. You know, we have the data through about the end of January at this point, um, down 7.8 percent on average versus where they were in in 2022. And you see at the very beginning of the year, you know, closer to in in line. So that's accelerated, and you know that implies that the contracts that are rolling over down double digits because that's an average, and some haven't been you know, repriced yet, and so. Would encourage um, you know, shippers to you know, keep some of these these national averages in mind that we have in in Sonar with, with with data points like this, and would also encourage those to sign up for Sonar so they could see their specific um, lanes that they're running and see all the data in those lanes, including the contract rates, which we have through our SCI um, uh, tool. You can see exactly the contract rates of the of the lanes that you're running, you know, tender rejection rates, late rates in the lanes that you're running, um, et cetera. So. Uh, basically, if I was a, a shipper and looking at this and you're seeing the, the, the rates coming down, you know, maybe you're at a point where you're starting to think about longer term you know, contracts, if that's possible. Uh, I know some of the, the truckload companies are, are, are talking about keeping the durations of some of these contracts short, maybe more mini bids because they don't know whether the market is going to improve. I think um, the trajectory of 
the um, you know, freight economy to a large extent depends on your view of uh, when inventories are going to be right size. We're still in this period of drawing down you know, inventories, but, you know, those things tend to overcorrect where we, we got, you know, be, to have too much inventory, then we sort of shut off the the, the imports. And, you know, at some point we're probably going to overcorrect to the downside and we're not going to have enough goods, you know, in inventory to to, to move to the to the end market. So um, at, at that point, um, you know, there have to be a restocking. That restocking could tighten up uh, um, the freight market. So that's something to, you know, something to watch. Um, another one that I would look at if I was a CPG company, want to move to the next um, you know, chart, uh, the van uh, is be the van contract rates and comparing those to the the van um, you know, spot rates, if we could bring that up. And so, you know, this this line is from two different sources. The one in white is from a company that processes uh, transactions, and um, that's the contract rate. So we're saying on average, Excluding fuel, two dollars and fifty six cents on a nationwide basis. In orange is we call it the NTIL uh, twelve, which is going to be um, spot rates um, that exclude. You know, there's, a, there's an algorithm there to exclude fuel surcharges, and that is from a consortium of uh, brokers that provide us with data on a daily basis. And so, you know, really since kind of um, almost this time last year, the the spot rates have been below. The contract rates, and they've been kind of unsustainably below the contract rates, and that's still true. You sort of look at the spread there, and it shows that spot rates, um, when you back out fuel um, from the spot rates, still about sixty percent below the contract rates. And so, you know, if I'm looking, if I'm a shipper, and I'm looking at this, um, you know, I'd say, well, I still think, you know, contract rates have a significant a, a amount of distance to fall. It wasn't clear. Uh, that was true maybe right at the end of last year. And a lot of that that spike you see at the right right part of the chart was related to um, just some tightness, you know, around the holiday season. That seems to have come come back in. Now we're in kind of a seasonal slow part of the year, being impacted by Chinese New Year, not yet at the point where retailers are are making a big push to stock summer merchandise. Usually that starts to heat up in March. And so you know, thinking forward, I really think March this year is going to be uh, an indicator of how strong the freight markets are going to be for the rest of the year. And, and there's actually a fair amount of optimism when, you know, at least the, the carriers that talk to, to, to Wall Street talk about how the rest of the year is going to play out, where a lot feel that, you know, we get once we get into the second half of the year, at that point, the inventories will be low enough, they'll need to be restocked, you'll see a resurgence in uh, demand. And that's really what's going to be, it's going to tighten up the, 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 the freight markets that or, or maybe and or capacity coming out of the marketplace, um, which, you know, you think that has to happen, given how weak the freight markets have been. So that's kind of the, the bull case, eventual inventory restocking with capacity coming out. The, the bear case is no one ever, is ever going to buy anything that is discretionary again, because groceries, fuel, uh, utilities. Now, auto insurance has gotten to be hugely inflationary. People's, people are renting houses. Those rents have been reset higher, that there's just not a lot of discretionary income for anything fun. You sort of look at the um, you know, consumer data and the credit card balances are well above where they were you know, pre-pandemic levels after coming down. The savings rate is now down to about 3%. It basically went from 8% before the pandemic to 19% during the pandemic, now down to 3 So people aren't saving very much. They're putting more on their credit cards. 
and people are cutting back, uh, you know, where they can. Um, there was a gym near me that cut its monthly membership price in half, which tells you that um, people are not, uh, you know, renewing their, their their gym membership. So, so people do seem to be cutting back um, where they can now. Gym membership isn't going to move a lot of freight, but I think when people cut back on those discretionary items, they're, they're cutting back also on things they don't necessarily need to buy, you know, clothing, furniture, electronics, uh, those things are really hurting. We've done some interesting pieces on um, uh, on, on freight waves about, um, you know, Rachel Premack put out a few things on uh, other sort of alternative indicators of economic activity. She wrote one article about uh, cardboard boxes, how those are down, another one about uh bubble wrap, how that is is down, which tend to be, you know, more valuable items would be shipped in, in, in bubble wrap. And then this latest one about, uh, you know, beer sales, which, um, you know, relates to CPG and also um, this concept of trading down, um, maybe not necessarily consuming less, but consuming um, you know, different brands, which is a reversal of what we saw during the pandemic, where during the pandemic, people had more money to spend they opted for the higher end uh, products on, on, on pretty much everything. So um, really that's what I wanted to go over today. Um, I'll send out the newsletter on Wednesday. And, um, you know, with that, hope everyone has a, has a good, good day.